The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So it shall be when the Lord your God brings you into the land of which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build, houses full of all good things which you did not fill, hewn out wells which you did not dig, vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. When you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve him and shall take oaths in his name. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are all around you, For the Lord your God is a jealous God among you. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God, his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord that it may be well with you, and that you may go in and possess the good land of which the Lord swore to your fathers, to cast out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has spoken. When your son asks you in time to come, saying, What, what is the meaning of the testimonies, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders before our eyes, great and severe, against Egypt, Pharaoh, and all his household. Then he brought us out from there, that he might bring us in to give us the land of which he swore to our fathers, And the Lord commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Please be seated. Will you pray with me as we begin this morning? Heavenly Father, we need you today more than ever. Families are fractured. Prisons are stuffed full. Marriages are falling apart. Sons and daughters are leaving home and leaving the church. Mothers are being left behind. Fathers are leaving their posts. God, you've planted fathers to be point men in their households. We have a job to do. And yet, if we're honest, Lord, we realize how often we have fallen short and failed in our role as dad, father. Lord, this morning we ask that you would speak to us through your word. Show us what a man of God looks like. Shape us into the earthly father that you desire for us to be for your glory and honor. Teach us your statutes and judgments and laws that we might teach them to those who follow after us. Fuel us with passion to be a father, to lead as Christ would have us lead. Help us to take our families often before your throne This is the place of mercy. This is the place 
to obtain help in our time of need. And Lord, we need your help here, being a father. We need your mercy and your grace to be effective fathers in enemy territory. We need the spirit of Christ at work in us to be all that you've called us to be. And just as you called Israel to hear, I pray, Lord, that you would also cause us to hear what you have to say today. And I pray that we would hear and begin to see the fruit of families walking in your light. That we would hear and start to see fathers engaged in the battles that are going on in their homes. Lord, have your way. Speak this morning. Pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Steve Farrar, in his classic book, Point Man, written back in 1990. In fact, as I read an excerpt here, you'll pick up on some of the things that were still around in 1990. Tells the story of his friend Dave, a police officer in San Jose, California. And in his own words, Dave reports firsthand about being called to a domestic disturbance that had taken place. The woman was crying and yelling at her husband who was standing with his hands in the pockets of greasy overalls. I stepped from my patrol car, and as I walked toward the two, I could hear the woman yelling at her husband to fix whatever he had done to the car so she could leave. He made no reply, but only laughed at her with a contemptuous laugh. She turned to me and asked me to make him fix the car. My my fill unit broke in, and we split the two up so that we could find a solution to the problem. I began talking to the husband who said that his wife was having an affair and she was leaving. I asked him if they'd gone for counseling, and he said that he was not interested. He went on to say that he was interested in only getting his things back. He said that his wife had hidden them from him. I asked his wife about his things, and she said she wouldn't give them to him until she got one of the three VCRs that they owned. For those of you young people here, that's a video cassette recorder. I found out later that his things consisted of the narcotics he dealt in. The other officer went to the wife's car and began looking under the hood to see if he could spot the trouble. The husband walked over, took the coil from his pocket, handed it to the officer. He then told his wife that she could have one of the VCRs if he could have his things. She finally agreed and went into the house. As she entered the house, I noticed two little girls standing in the doorway watching the drama unfold. They were about eight And 10 years old, both wore dresses and clung to a cabbage patch doll. At their feet were two small suitcases. My eyes couldn't leave their faces as they watched the two people they loved most tear each other apart. The woman emerged with the VCR in her arms and went to the car where she put it into the crowded back seat. She turned and told her husband where he could find his things. They both agreed that they had equal shares of the things that they had accumulated in 10 years of marriage. Then as I stood in unbelief, I watched the husband point to the two little girls and say to the wife, Well, which one do you want? Without any apparent emotion... The mother chose the older one. The girls looked at each other as the older one picked up her suitcase, climbed into her mother's car. I had to stand and watch as the littlest girl, still clutching her cabbage patch doll in one hand and her suitcase in the other, watched her big sister and her mother drive off. I watched as tears streamed down her face in total bewilderment. There I stood, the unwilling witness to the death of a family. Families are dying all over America. I read that 
And I remember this week sitting in my office after reading that. Balling. Saying to the Lord, resolving, if you will, to the Lord, this is not going to happen on my watch in this household. And some of you hear the story and some of you may say, yeah, but... That's a, that's a picture of, of what goes on in, in the lives of families who don't know the Lord. And I would ask you this morning, you, you think that the stories and statistics change if you're a Christian? Do, do you think the stories change if your family attends a worship service on a Sunday morning? Would like to think so. As we found out, a few weeks ago when talking about marriage, we see that there's not a far cry difference from marriages outside the Lord and marriages in the Lord today. Patrick Morley has, has written extensively and done much research in this realm of men. He's researched men in the church. He's written a few books, probably familiar with Man in the Mirror. It's an older classic book of his. In his book, No Man Left Behind, written in 2006, he shares some startling statistics about men in the church. It's not men in the world, like the story I just read you. Men in the church. For every ten men in the church, nine will have children who leave the church. Can we just pause that for just a moment? For every ten men, nine are going to have children that leave the church. I don't share these statistics to, like, scare you. And statistics, as you and I both know, are statistics. They'll fluctuate depending upon what statistics and what reports you're reading. And I get that. But to the point of what we're talking about this morning, I do believe these are valuable. These are important for us to at least be aware of. It's important also to know that this book was written in 06. We live in the year 2017. And if nine out of ten men back then, 90% is pretty high. For every, every ten men in the church, eight will not find their jobs satisfying. For every ten men in the church, six will pay the monthly minimum on their credit card bills. For every ten men in the church, five will have a major problem with pornography. Five out of ten. That's 50%. For every ten men in the church, four will get divorced, affecting one million children each year. For every ten men in the church, only one will have a biblical worldview. Those are amazing to me. I believe many of us have forgotten that we're in a battle. Here's the problem, men. Here's the problem. If you forget you're in a battle, you will very quickly find yourself a casualty. Here's why. The enemy is intentional during his short time here on earth. He's out to destroy any and all who have anything to do with the Lord and his church. His strategy, oh, he has many schemes for sure. But really it's twofold as we're talking this morning. Farrar goes on in his book and he actually labels these and I think he's right on point with, them, with, with what's going on around us. I think we see the evidence of this all around us. His twofold strategy seems to be working very well, church. Here's strategy number one. To effectively alienate and sever a husband's relationship with his wife, impacting the marriage. And two, to effectively alienate and sever father's relationship with his children. Talking about family. Marriage and family. 
Ephesians 6, 10 and 11 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Why? That you might be able to stand against. Stand against the wiles, the schemes, the trickery, the deceitfulness of the evil one. James 4, 7 and 8 says, Submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and what's he going to do? Flee from you. Draw near to God and he will what? Draw near to you. 1 Peter 5, 8. Be sober, be vigilant, be watchful. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may nibble on. No, devour. For far too long, the enemy has been picking off marriages and families. The result? A nation that's removed itself far from God. We're reaping what we've sowed. Whether intentionally or not, we are bearing the fruit of our sinful, independent, covetous lifestyles. Divorce, pornography, crime, injustice. You know, reading the reports of crime about how 93%, and this is an old statistic, 93% of the people in, in prison today are men. And of those 93%, 85 of those, 85% of those proclaim that they never had a father figure growing up. We continue carrying on day by day, blinded, it seems, to the root of the problems. Morley, in his book, shares a parable from the social service arena that I believe helps us examine the root problems. He said the parable is told about a small village on the edge of a river. One day, one of the villagers noticed a baby floating in the water. The villager quickly swam out to save the baby and brought it to shore. The next day, another villager was walking beside the river and saw two babies in the river. He quickly jumped in the water and rescued them. The following day, four babies were rescued by the villagers. Every day, the number of children in the water increased. The villagers organized themselves quickly, building piers, tying rope lines, and training teams to rescue babies. They were soon working day and night, and still the number of children floating down the river increased each day. The villagers worked as hard as they could, even to the point of exhaustion. But no one ever asked the question, why are these babies in the river? No one ever thought to themselves, let's go upstream and see where they're coming from. He asked the question, what is the upstream cause of our cultural and spiritual ills? Short answer, sin. Longer answer, unrepentant sin. Longer answer yet, willfully transgressing the commandments of God. Turn to Deuteronomy 6 if you're not there. After a second helping of the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy 5, verses 6 through 21, we read in verse 30 that God had instructed Moses to send the people back to their tents. And then in verse 31, But as for you, stand here by me. God has got a word here from Moses. A word that's intended to be passed along to the people. But as for you, God says, stand here by me. I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments which you shall teach them. That they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Flip over to Deuteronomy 6.1. Now this is the commandment. And these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God commanded. He commanded me. Moses is telling, God commanded me to teach you that you may observe them, not just listen to them, not just, oh, this is a great message. 
to observe them in the land that you're crossing over to possess. Now, what do we know about this land that the nation of Israel was crossing over to possess? And why would it be important for the nation of Israel to observe the Lord's statutes and judgments in the land? Oh, it's true that the land they were crossing over was a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Oh, it sounds good. Lots of good things there. You're going to inherit trees and, and olive groves and, and all of these wonderful things. You didn't, you didn't build them. You didn't plant them. You're going to experience some wonderful things in this land that's been promised. But it was also a land filled with multiple gods. A land where the people bowed down to many idols. A land filled with people far from God. A land whose influence ventured out beyond the boundaries of God's commands. Adhering to God's commands in a foreign land, in a land that repels the commands and statutes of the one true God, this would not be an easy assignment. Does God ever give easy assignments? (laughs) I don't know that he does. And for good reason. He wants us to depend and rely on him. Think about Israel's situation. As Deuteronomy 6 opens up, as the book opens up for that matter, the nation is situated on the plains of Moab and they're about to cross into the promised land. The Lord instructs Moses to teach the people his commandments. God's own people, listen to this, God's own people were to walk into this promised land equipped and furnished with God's mind and God's heart. His people were being groomed to know the God of heaven so well that their journey into Canaan would not compromise their beliefs or reprogram their behaviors. Thus, the word to be taught. What we read about in Deuteronomy chapter 6 parallels our own journey here on earth in enemy territory. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 5 that the enemy currently holds sway here in this place for a brief time. We are confronted, we are in fact bombarded daily with alternatives from the world... Desires from the flesh, and we find ourselves oftentimes subject to the pride of life. Those, by the way, are found in 1 John chapter 2, 15 through 17. In order to live here without succumbing to the evil one's ploys, we have need for God. We need his word operating in us, men and women, young and old, fathers in particular. We need His Holy Spirit empowering us, guiding us into all truth, convicting us of sin, and producing in us the fruit of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Like the people of Israel, the church of Jesus Christ must follow God's ways if she wants God's results. We need to follow God's ways if we want His results. Deuteronomy 6.25, the last verse of the chapter, gives us the result. Then it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to observe all these commandments. Then it will be righteousness. Deuteronomy 6, church, is delivered to a nation. And within the nation is a myriad of families... Within those families are marriages, husbands and wives. And within those marriage relationships, there are children, sons and daughters. Families are about to enter the promised land in the text. And God delivers a word that targets the family. It's a word that helps families thrive in enemy territory. Any families here need help navigating through enemy territory that we live in today? I do. What we have before us is God's discipling mechanism to see that God's families stick to God's ways. 
Things are not going to be comfortable in the new land. The culture is not going to embrace them. The culture is not going to embrace their God. This word from God via Moses is intended to equip and prepare and strengthen the families of God in the faith. This word is a generational word. Not only for parents at that time, but intended to impact sons and daughters, grandsons, granddaughters. See, God never intended for his word to be a place, to be in place for a, what we would say, a limited time only. We see what happens when we have that particular mindset. Judges 2, you remember Judges 2, verse 10? It's, it's, it's talking about the generation after Joshua. When all of Joshua's generation had been gathered together to their fathers, another generation arose, listen to this, who did not know the Lord, know the work which he'd done for them. The Bible shines some light on some alarming truth here. It is possible for the next generation not to know the Lord nor the history of the Lord's marvelous works. Startling to consider that that's a possibility. The Bible says it's so. <laughs> it happened. See, the evil one's twofold strategy is working nicely to this end. Because you see, destroying marriage and family, God's institutions, it's like cutting the cord on God's life supply to the next generation. How so? God's plan is to use the family unit as, as a primary conduit for passing along the gospel of Jesus Christ. Dads and moms are entrusted with a stewardship. It's like the baton carriers in, in the relay race. We must hold firmly and see that it gets passed on to our sons and daughters. There are too many dads and moms dropping the baton. Some of them aren't even making it to the exchange zone. And others, perhaps like the ones we read about at the beginning, fail to run all the way to the end. They just give up. Dads, this Deuteronomy 6 text is addressed primarily to the nation of Israel. But the weight of the content is unmistakably pointed and directed at fathers. God has you as the platoon commander overseeing a family unit. Their physical, spiritual, emotional survival and well-being is largely predicated on your own beliefs, your own behavior. You have been appointed by God as head in your home, the leader of your family. Your wife and children are watching and they're looking to you, Dad. God's commandments are intended to be practiced in the land. This is not some trite tutorial in the text given to the people before entering the land. This is not a lecture. These statutes and judgments were intended to be their life. These instructions were their marching orders in the new land. Hear and be careful to observe, verse 3 says. Fathers, it's time to rise up. We're talking about resurrection of these last several weeks. Resurrected fatherhood. It's time to be raised up. And not raised up in the sense of, look at me. That's not what I'm talking about. But to be raised up in a sense of walking out our calling as fathers, as dads in the home. What God in his word has instructed us to be. Not just to do, but who are we to be? Who's going to commit to his marriage in this place? Who's going to commit to washing his family in this word? Who's going to commit to raising up sons and daughters for the glory of God? Fatherhood, like motherhood, we talked about last week. It's been relegated to a, a dusty shelf in the corner. 
It's been downplayed. The culture we live in is blurring the lines of fatherhood. Saying that children are, are, are they're going to be okay without dad in the home. No, they're not. Oh, the world says, uh, uh, kids, they're going to be just fine. They're going just, to just find a mom living somewhere else. No, they're not. With God's word before me open, I want you to know that those are lies being told by the world. Because you see, the evil one loves to alienate, loves to sever relationships, marriage relationships, and parent-child relationships in particular. Listen, he's after three things, according to the Bible. He's after killing, stealing, and what? Destroying. That's what he's after. So before entering the promised land, the nation of Israel receives these words of life. Men, as representatives of your own homes today, I'd like to explain this text and in simple terms. Simple terms give you some guidance for leading your family through the minefields of this pluralistic culture we call America. In case you haven't noticed, we are no longer a Christian nation. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. The Shema. Hebrew word for hear. Shema Yisrael. Hear, O Israel. It's prayed by Jews regularly, even today. In their prayers, in their morning prayers, in their afternoon prayers, in their evening prayers. The Shema. It's a recognition of who God is, that God is one. He is God alone. The idea actually couples with the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What he's not saying there is, it's okay to have some gods as long as they're not placed up above me. No, you shall have no other gods. No other gods. We recognize today one God in three persons, don't we? By the way, there's no contradiction here, as some might think there would be. Well, he says there's one God, and you say there's one God in three persons. The Old Testament is making clear that Adonai Elohim is one. One God. There's no room for any other gods. God is God alone. He's a God with no rivals. And operating in enemy territory where multiple gods are common, this first word in verse 4 might sound a bit restrictive. God is the only God? Today you might hear the question, you believe that Jesus is the only way? That's a pretty narrow view. The nation is to hear and observe this truth right here in verse 4. In its simplest form, it's a call to know God. You can write that down. Know God. It's a call right here in verse 4 to know God. It's an urgent announcement to understand who God is. If you're going to be among an ungodly people, you'd better know God, God says to Moses to the people. Equip yourself with a doctrinal understanding of God's nature and character. This will anchor you in a land that wants you to compromise and abandon God's word. Do you know the God of the Bible? Do you believe he is from everlasting? Do you believe that in the beginning God created? Do you know God in the sense of having a relationship with him through his son Jesus. Moses is instructing the nation in God's ways. And of first importance is knowing him, not knowing about him, knowing him. We, we sing a hymn. I love the hymn. It's turned into one of my favorite hymns that we sing. Jesus, oh Jesus, do you know him today? Do not turn away. 
Jesus, oh Jesus, without him, how lost I would be. You see, knowing God serves as your true north, friends. Your spiritual compass in the foreign territory. God is never going to steer you in a wrong direction. Isn't that good news? And dads, if you know God, if you know him and you have a relationship with him, you are guiding those in your home in the good way, leading them to observe the statutes and judgments of your father in heaven. Look at verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. We fast forward to the Gospels in Mark chapter 12. And we see in verses 28 through 31, one of the scribes come to Jesus and asks him, which is the first commandment of all? Jesus answered him, He said, the first of all the commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, he adds, with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. And Jesus goes on and says, the second, like it, is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus, right here in Mark 12, quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. In fact, Jesus, we find in the Gospels, is quoting from Deuteronomy quite often. Not only is there a call from God to know him, but there's a call to love him. You can write that down. Know God, love God. The call to know him, there's a call to love him. With everything that you've got... Hear Israel, I want you to know God, and I want you to love God. And as you travel into enemy territory, knowing God and loving God is quite a powerful arsenal to have at your disposal. Fathers, do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If your children this day were interviewed and asked about dad's love for the Lord... How might they answer? Do they recognize dad's love for God on a daily basis? Is loving God evident in his life? Is his life dependent upon God? Can you tell that he loves God by what he reads? Can you tell that he loves God by what he watches? Can you tell that he loves God by how he speaks to you and how he speaks to your mom? What if the nation took seriously this call to know God and love God? What if you, fathers, took seriously this call to know God and love him supremely? Any thoughts on how this might change a nation? Any thoughts on how this might change a family? A marriage? So so the precursor instruction in the text is twofold. Know God, love God. Simple, right? We're dealing with some simple things here. Know God, love God. Let's not make this more complicated than what the text says. What follows then are some anchor points. I'm going to give you five anchor points. In verses 6, 7, 8, and 9. They're going to come right from the text. Okay? I'm not making them up. They're right here. You can follow along with me. Anchor points for keeping God's commandments central in your life. Men, in particular. And in the lives of your families. Fatherhood is raised up. It's resurrected when men get a glimpse of God's ways and press into his word to observe to do what he's commanded. It's like we read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and it's this, listen up, men. Here's what's needing to happen. Listen. Here's anchor point number one. By the way, they all start with a T. I hope you remember them. The first one is take them. Take them. Take them. You get the picture. Take them. Deuteronomy chapter 6, 
Verse 6. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. Oftentimes we read that verse and we may be immediately drawn to Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. The value of hiding God's word in your heart is off the charts. Credible value. Most of us would acknowledge this is true. If I went down the rows and asked you whether or not hiding his word in your heart is of great value, I, I don't think I would have a whole lot of pushback in this place. But why is it that what's deemed important hardly ever gets done? If hiding his word in my heart helps me not to sin against God, why is it then that so many followers of Jesus have so little of his word in them? If that is a sticking point for some of you, men in particular, perhaps let that settle a little bit. My purpose, dads, is not to beat you up, but to stir you up. The words of God are to be in your heart. Let's do away with the excuses. Let's get into his word. See, if we know God and we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, won't there be a desire then to know what he has to say? In fact, that's why I think that the two things up front we shared are so important. Because if you don't know him, you don't have a relationship with him, you don't love him, you're not going to take up his word and read it. Because Reading his word comes from the overflow of your love for him, your knowing him, having a relationship with him. No relationship, no love, very little word in you. See, to have his words in your heart, man, it goes, it goes a bit farther, I believe, than simple memorization. I don't believe for a moment that this verse has in mind only wrote scripture memorization. That's part of the idea, I do believe, for sure. But isn't there more? What is it? Let me ask the question. What is it to have the words of God in your heart, man? When his words are in you, you are, listen, you are a changed person. One who desires to have God's words in him is a new creation. He's now under new management. He's undergone heart surgery performed by God the Holy Spirit himself. When you have the words of God in your heart, you live differently. You stand out like those apostles who, after undergoing some scrutiny by the religious leaders of the day, they were found to be a bit peculiar, uneducated men. Men who had been with Jesus. Remember that? Acts 4.13. Has your heart changed in such a way, man, that people can tell that you've been with Jesus? Are God's words in your heart leading others to conclude that God's doing something in this person? Take them in. Take them in. Take these words in. We're going to see here in just a moment why it's important to take these words in. Take these words in. Take these words in. Take his words to heart. Have them in you. Here's anchor point number two. It's teach them. Not only take them in, but teach them. Verse seven, the first part of verse seven. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You see, context tells us, as I spoke earlier, about, yes, this is given to the nation, but the content and the context tells us it's really in many ways directed toward the fathers. 
in that day, in that culture, in the Jewish culture, the fathers were the ones teaching. And, and today, we talk about dads and moms teaching the children, training the children. Teach them diligently to your children. Teach these words, God's words. And you know, dads, you, you may not have caught this one the first time you became a parent. Think back to the first time you became a parent. And as a father, you have been given here the command to diligently teach your children God's words and God's ways. We might think of Proverbs 22, 6. Train up a child in the way he should go so that when he's old, he will not depart from it. Are you teaching your children diligently in God's words and God's ways? I want you to consider this for just a moment. When Moses passed these words along from God to the people of Israel, there was good reason why teaching them was necessary. You see, because if the parents didn't teach their children what God had to say, then the children would be taught by the pagans of the land that they were entering. Does this make sense? This is the context of Deuteronomy 6. God is still preserving his words today through the family, through the household ministry, where dad is charged and exhorted to teach, to wash his wife and children in the word. There are so many dads, fathers, who absolutely ignore this call. For dads to forfeit teaching God's words in the home. This is how, in large part, the next generation winds up spiritually empty. Think about it. With little or no knowledge of God and His marvelous word. We don't teach them! We want to point a finger at what government's doing or not doing. We want to point a finger at what the education system is doing or not doing. We want to point fingers at everyone else except ourselves. The reality is, we don't teach them. And dads, can I, can I just speak a word here with you for just a moment? Again, not meant to bonk you on the head. It's, it's meant to stir you up, to awaken you to God's truth here. Some of you are content, dads. Some of you are content with mom doing all the teaching of God's words with the children. If you don't hear anything else this morning, I hope and pray you listen to this. Set your heart and your mind to diligently teach your children from God's word. The Bible says he will give you a mouth and a wisdom. And I guarantee you, if you step out in faith and you open up the Bible in the midst of your family and you start to read, do if you don't, some of you in here say, I don't know how to do it. I don't know. I'm just not. And you have all these excuses. So like Moses, when he says, Moses, go. He starts stuttering. Do it. Walk by faith. Trust him. He's going to give you a mouth and a wisdom. Because you see, God himself wants his word in your children. If your heart's desire is to do that very thing, don't you think he's going to bless you in that? Don't you think he's going to pour out favor? Don't you think his Holy Spirit's going to help you deliver his word to those in your home? Teach them God's truth. Dad, you, teach them. Teach them what God would want them to know. Teach them what it is to have a biblical worldview. Teach them what it means to know God and to love God with all of your heart. Teach them diligently. Teach them regularly. Will that require a change in your current schedule? Perhaps. I can't think of much that beats teaching your children God's words. Impressing these words upon your children. Any 8 to 5 job more important than that? Any favorite hobby that takes your time and attention, dads? Is this more important than teaching your children? You make time for what's most important to you. Take them in. Teach them. Here's anchor point number three from the text. Talk of them. Talk of them. Verse seven. 
Not only to teach them, you shall talk of them, these words, God's words. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Teach them and talk of them are connected. I want you to see this. If we're teaching God's words to them, why wouldn't we want to follow up with them in natural conversation about what's being taught? Teaching and talking go hand in hand. Listen, it's Jesus' way. Read the Gospels. He teaches and talks. He teaches and he talks. It's the rabbi-student way. It's the teacher-disciple pathway. As parents, we teach them God's words and then talk of God's words. We keep the matter before them, listening to their questions, listening to their concerns, listening to their life challenges. We keep the conversation going by navigating them back to God's words. The talk that's spoken of here in the text is not some idle or meaningless chatter. Dads, here's a question. What are you most inclined to talk with your children about? When's the last time you had a conversation around God's words with your children? When's the last time that your talk followed up on a teaching from God's word? I'm afraid that many Christian fathers, if they do spend any time at all talking to their children, and again, statistics tell us fathers don't spend a whole lot of time talking to their children, period. God's word goes far above and beyond what those statistics say in terms of being with our children, teaching our children, talking to our children. Find ways... Dads, to institute God talk, I'll just use that terminology. Find ways to institute God talk with your children. God talk about his word. Talk about his words. And listen, the Bible is clear here on the when. Look at the rest of verse 7. When you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. I'm not going to parse all four of those and break those down. And uh, No. What's God's instructions on teaching and talking to your children of God's words and ways. I think what we see here in verse 7, this is not intended to be a class, it's not a program, there's not a set time of day necessarily where we meet with them. God's instruction here seems to advocate that our talking of his words and ways are to be carried out in the context of daily life. Daily life. Do you look for opportunities to impress God's words upon your children Monday through Saturday? Fathers, the routines of daily life. How are you teaching them and talking to them in these moments? The meal table, opportunity. My wife and I were having a conversation about this just a day or two ago. The meal table, using the meal table as that opportunity to be able to talk about these things. One of the benefits of home educating ought to be that we have more time to talk with our own children about the things of God. Amen? That ought to be one of the privileges, one of the benefits. We have more time to talk to them about things that matter. What you talk about tells your family, dads, what's most important to you. No talk regarding God's words. How then do you know whether the teaching is settling into the hearts of the children? Well, see, what a tragedy it is when a Christian, when a professing Christian household has no heart-level conversations about God's words. We talk a lot about a lot of different things. But what about adhering to God's instructions on this one? Take them in. Teach them, talk of them. Here's anchor point number four. Tie them. Verse eight, you shall bind them or tie them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. We're still talking about his words. We're still talking about his commandments. The Jews would literally wrap or bind a cord around their arm, starting in their hand, go up to their forearm and it was a reminder to them of God's Words And they had these little boxes that were attached to their foreheads, serving as frontlets between their eyes. 
And visually, these were pictures of the Word in close proximity. Tied to them. Literally, bound to them. And visually, the frontlets were on the head before the eye gates. Reminders to meditate and think upon God's words, to have His words in them, to renew their minds in God's commands. And we can read the Gospels and we see the confrontations between Jesus and the religious leaders. And we see in Matthew 23, Jesus unveiling the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees. It says in verse 5, But all their work, works they do to be seen by men. Jesus is speaking these words. They make their phylacteries broad. In other words, the, the, the longer that was tied up, their, their, it, made, it, it, was a, it was a show, it was a pretense. And, and the robes, they would have these little decorative deals and and the one who had the most decorative showy was, was deemed better was because well, that looked good. That meant you were really spiritual. And Jesus is addressing in Matthew 23 a show, a big act. Woe to you. <laughs> they were wearing these visual reminders more to impress people than to remember God and his words. The broader the phylacteries, the better. The bigger the frontlets, the more obvious, the better. To be seen by men, to be thought of by men as religious. See, Jesus condemns these leaders, and he calls them out for what they are. They're fakes, they're pretenders. The, the idea of binding these words to them and having them as frontlets between the eyes... This is meant to actually produce something on the interior. You know, you can wear that bracelet and you can wear that t-shirt and you can attach a fish symbol to the back of your car. But if what is attached to you outwardly never penetrates the heart and mind, if what's on the outside never gets on the inside, we're acting, we're play-acting, just like the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus condemned. 1 Samuel 16, 7. God says, man looks on the outside, but God looks on the heart. Fathers, have you been practicing your Christianity behind a veil? Have you masked what's going on right here in your heart by trying to paint a convincing picture on the outside? Have you thought more of your outward appearance in man's eyes than tending to your heart trying to please the Lord? The call is not to abandon the reminders of God's words, but to remain steadfast. Don't allow the evil one to take something intended for good, which is the recall of God's words, to think often of him. Don't allow the evil one to take that good thing and twist it for your own prideful, selfish tendencies. These visual reminders ought to promote Christ and not self. His fruit ought to be evident. Do people see more of you or do they see more of Christ? Are the visual reminders more to impress others than to hide this word in you? Tie them close, but be warned about the intrinsic motivation for doing so. Take them, teach them, talk of them, tie them. Here's the last anchor point. Tell them. Tell them. Verse 9, Deuteronomy 6. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Tell them in the sense of making his words known. Making his words known. You think about writing his words on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Think about that for just a moment, what that might look like. When people come to your home, do they know they're entering a place that honors the words of God? Men, when people come into your office, do others sense anything different about your office? Is there an aroma of Christ there in that place? People come into your home, do they sense the Spirit of God in your home? Fathers, your house is the place where you live and interact with your family. 
is the word of God in your home. Not just a visual, but I'm asking if his words are alive and well inside the home. You can fool people. You can have a cross stationed strategically in your yard, in your front porch. You can show the outward signs of one who knows about the Lord. The point here is not to abandon what's being spoken in verse 9, but it's to write on the doorposts and gates with proper, godly motivation. Fathers, let's be sure we're not provoking the Lord by dressing the part and yet operationally living like the world. And and sadly, tragically thinking that it's okay to do this. We live a life of duplicity in the process. James speaks about not being double-minded. If you know God and you have a relationship with him through Jesus, you'll want to please him, dads. If you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, you'll want to please him. Your motivation will be God-honoring. It'll be faith-fueled. It'll be Holy Spirit-enabled. Not fake, not pretend, not for show. Take them in. Teach them to your children. Talk of them with your children. Tie them, keep them close to you. And tell them, genuinely desire to point others to the Lord Jesus. God's plan is to use the family unit as the primary conduit for passing along the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fatherhood is in need of being resurrected today. Biblical fatherhood is modeled right here in Deuteronomy 6. Men, know God. I'm reminded of those words in the scripture that talk about today, today, today. Don't wait another day. Today is the day. Don't harden your heart any longer. Today is the day. Know God in a relationship through his son, Jesus Christ. Know him. Love him, men. I pray that as we've looked at Deuteronomy 6 and we've seen these anchor points, that men, you would be encouraged to take these words in. Like a sponge soaking those words in. That you can have his words. That you desire his words. And with those words then, dads, teach your children. Teach them from God's word. Open the Bible and teach your children from God's word. And talk of them, dads. Talk of these words with your children and your family. Tie them close. Tie them close. And tell others about them as well. And do, do the tying and the telling with a right and proper and fitting motivation to please the Lord your God. The story doesn't have to end the way that it began this morning. It's a heart-wrenching story. But as I read it, I, I, I was reminded that that story is an example of what unfolds throughout our country, around the globe, every day. May it not be so in our households here. May it not be so. Resolve. Jonathan Edwards was big on putting resolves. And I'm going to leave you with a resolve, man. Resolve to stand upon the word of God, to take the word of God while you are living. You are already living in enemy territory. You know the schemes of the evil one from the word of God. Take his word as your sword and lead your families well. For God's sake, for God's glory, all the way to the finish line. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I pray, Lord, you would raise up fathers in this place who are unashamed to speak of your name. Fathers who are looking 
more to your word than they are to the ways of the world for their leadership. Lord, may we sift everything through the funnel of your word of truth. May we be diligent to grow in our relationship with you, God. May we be always looking back at your great love toward us so that we know what love is. We know what love is because you first loved us. You laid down your life through your son. You laid down your life for us and you've called us to do the very same thing, to lay down our lives for the brethren. We know what love is because you gave us a great picture of that love. Help us as dads in particular to be able to give pictures to our own families of what love is. Let's show them what that is. Lord, help us and give us, I pray, wisdom to know how to go about doing these things we just shared in Deuteronomy 6. Some anchor points for our lives, some anchor points for the lives of our households. Lord, it's our desire to walk with you by faith to walk with you, to trust that what you've said in your word is true, to trust that we can take you at your word, to trust that we can open this word and teach it and read it to our children and to our wives and to be able to explain to them through your Holy Spirit the truths found in this word and to know and to trust that you will bless and show and shower forth your favor on the family and the household that's walking with you. Lord, I pray that our lights would shine as households, as families here in this place. Our lights would shine that others might see our good deeds and be pointed to you, our Father in heaven. There are many today who didn't have godly fathers here on earth. But Lord, we have you, a godly Father in heaven who is always good, always good and always loving always faithful he's one we can always trust his word is always true so Lord I pray that we would be about promoting that message that we have a loving caring heavenly father see that we walk in your ways Lord Move us, make us to walk in your ways the remainder of our days. We need you. We can't do this on our own. So we come before you, Lord, just acknowledging our own sin, our own failures, our own inadequacies, our own falling short. Lord, I pray you would raise up godly men in this place, godly dads, godly sons, godly daughters, godly wives and mothers for your glory for your honor for your name's sake use us pray in Jesus name amen